0: All right. Thank you so much Eve. Good to see you. Ah, oh, good to be with you all. I'm Della. I'm zooming in, beaming in from uh, San Francisco, California. And here this evening to offer some thoughts, reflections on the topic of right livelihood, cultivating right livelihood, exploring right livelihood. And then of course, some time for discussions and Q&A. So really, really good to be with you all. And I have been on, uh, I have given talks for Berkeley Insight before on Right Livelihood. So I want to keep it fresh for those who may have heard it before. So rather than going into an overview, I thought I'd pick a few questions that I'm thinking about, wondering about in terms of Right Livelihood and also questions that I've heard others ask either with me or to me or, or we've explored together. So this evening is guided by inquiry around the topic of Right Livelihood and my own uh, connection with the topic of Right Livelihood comes from my interest in buddhist economics buddhist economics i uh, one thing that's happening in the world that breaks my heart is inequality and i have considered my own right livelihood path to be a journey to looking at what what it is that causes uh inequality and what are the root causes and then the systemic solutions or antidotes and Buddhist economics has been one of the greatest gifts or areas of insight in my my work. And Right Livelihood is a part of that, kind of how we individually actualize Buddhist economics in our daily life. And my kind of introduction or invitation into a Right Livelihood path came from Satish Kumar, who's the founder of Schumacher College, where I went to graduate school. And he's a former Jane monk, and he walked around the world for a year without any money for peace, and he's a very special individual, also the editor of Resurgence and Ecology Magazine. And he told all of us graduating from Schumacher College, he said, I don't want any of you to get a job. I want you to cultivate right livelihood. I don't want any of you to get a job. I want you to cultivate Right Livelihood. So his insistence or his invitation was my entry into what is Right Livelihood? What does that mean? And how, how do I pursue a path of Right Livelihood? So I've been on that journey since, and I'm currently a Right Livelihood coach. I've just celebrated uh, ha- working with my 50th client as a Right Livelihood coach. So I've been doing this for about six years. So that's a little bit of an introduction about my connection with Right Livelihood, both in my own personal practice and my Right Livelihood practice. So questions, questions about Right Livelihood. So first, I want to drop in two questions for you all listening. So I just want to drop these questions in now, no need to answer them or even reflect on them, but I just want to plant the seed for our discussion later. But these are two questions I'm carrying for you all. One of them is, how are you bringing in your spiritual practice into your work? What's the integration process look like? How are you integrating or how are you bringing in mindfulness or heartfulness or the Dharma into your work life, into your employment, into your work? So that's one question I have for you. What does the integration process look like? And then the second question is, what are the, what are the challenges? The difficulties on your right livelihood path. What's alive for you in your right livelihood path that you're facing? So again, no need to answer those now. Just want to drop them in. I'd love to hear later when we have our open discussion time, what folks are thinking and feeling and experiencing. And the three questions that I thought I'd share a little bit about by way of exploration, uh, hopefully useful on your all's livelihood path. The first one is a question of, is right livelihood a privilege? Is cultivating right livelihood a privilege? Is even talking about it, is that, is that a privileged view or perspective or idea? The second is, what's the connection between right livelihood and visioning? So maybe some of you have done visioning practices, either in organizations or businesses or in your own life. So what's the connection there between right livelihood and visioning? And then finally, the third is, what is it helpful to have a role or a title to our right livelihood, to have a kind of something that we connect with, like I am a lawyer or I'm a teacher, you know, is that, is that helpful? And if so, when? So these are some questions that are really alive for me that I thought I'd bring to this, this evening, this time of exploration. And yeah, so I'll, I'll dive in there. So for the first, the first question, uh, is right livelihood a privilege? This, this actually comes from, I've given talks or sometimes even retreats on right livelihood, and sometimes this comes up, are we, is this privilege that we're talking about this, that right livelihood, is right livelihood a privilege? And I think that when we look at right livelihood as a noun, as if one has right livelihood, as if it were a state of being, where one could say, all of my work is in accordance with my values. I feel in deep integrity with all of my work. All of my supply chains are fair trade, ethical, sustainable, organic. Everyone's making a living wage. Our culture and our place of employment or work is completely supportive and helpful and we're using wise speech. Then, then yes, that would be right livelihood in a noun form. One would have right livelihood. And that, I imagine, would be a privileged opportunity. Not all of us have, not all of us can say we have right livelihood. We are in that moment, that state where all of our efforts regarding our livelihood and our work are in integrity with our values. So from that perspective, yes, right livelihood Part of the Eightfold Noble Path, one of the virtues on the Eightfold Noble Path, right livelihood, is privileged holding or state. And yet, if we view it differently, if we view it more as a verb or as a path or as a process, then I feel that it's something a bit more universal, that we all aspire to contribute. And this, this can be seen in universal basic income studies. They've shown that when folks are giving a universal basic incomes, there's this myth that folks will simply drop out of the labor force and not work anymore when they're given a universal basic income. But the research shows that folks may take a break, maybe to recover from burnout or to spend some time detoxing from whatever work they were doing. But then most often they go back to, or they come into some form of contribution. So this view of wanting to contribute this aspiration, right? Livelihood as a aspiration is a more universal attribute or theme. And so in that way, it's not necessarily a privileged perspective, but something more universal, something that we can all share. And when we view it as a path, we can also see that wherever we are on our right livelihood journey, that is it as it's showing up. So for folks maybe listening who are students, that's that's your right livelihood path as it's showing up now. For folks who are unemployed, that's that's right livelihood is in that moment, in that context, in that condition. Folks who are in retirement or refirement, there's, there's right livelihood there too. And folks in, in employment. So right livelihood is wherever you are in the path. And it's a deeper aspiration of aligning our work as part of our spiritual path, seeing our work as part of the Eightfold Noble Path, a virtue to aspire to. So in that way, it's yeah, it's not a privileged position. Ram Das, who I've been listening to a lot, who I know James talks about often, I've, I've been listening to the Be Here Now podcast, and Ram Das said, if you can if you can work with enlightened people or conscious people, great. That's that's awesome. And he also says, if you could marry a conscious being or an enlightened being great, but he also says, if you, if you can't, if you don't have that ability, then work with who you're with, work with whoever it is that you're, that you're working with, or you're married to. So that, that path view, that idea of wherever you are on the path is the path itself. And reminds me of the Thich Han quote, there is no way to happiness. Happiness is the way so right livelihood in this view is a is a returning each and every moment to how 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 am i in this moment related to suffering am i alleviating suffering and guiding towards human and planetary flourishing or am i contributing to suffering and when i look at the buddhist texts regarding right livelihood i find it's very limited it's very contextual i would say even right livelihood is the element of the eightfold noble path that is most specifically culturally and context culturally specific the the definitions include things like not dealing in trading humans or intoxicants or weapons or meat which are very important and yet today's culture and context and time period i wonder i wonder what the buddha would say today about right livelihood what that definition would be so I, I think this is an opportunity for us to really explore this in our own lives this isn't a philosophical thing it's very practical so again that that view of right livelihood is a path and that wherever you are that you're on it and so sometimes when I work with coaching clients they're working in a context that they would seek to change so the context of their work is something that is harmful or contributing to suffering, and so they seek to change the context of their work. For example, if one were working in oil and gas, trying to shift that company to more renewable energy, that might be an example of someone working on the right livelihood path in a shift in context. Then there's folks who look at the structures of their work environment, and they see how they're maybe not very transparent, or they're causing division or suffering by way of inequalities and so maybe their right livelihood goal or intention in that time on that path is to shift the structures to move towards more horizontal governance or a worker cooperative model sharing in profit sharing in decision making things like that. that that could be where where some folks are on their right livelihood path and for others, it's about changing culture. It's about that consciousness shift. Because perhaps we all know times when folks have worked in a nonprofit with a great mission and vision and values, and yet there's something in the culture that can feel unskillful. Maybe there's lack of wise speech, or there's uh, harmful ways of communicating and being with one another. So sometimes it's cultural shift that is one's right livelihood focus on their path so those are some thoughts on is right livelihood and talking about right livelihood privilege so when it's a noun yes to have it yes but to aspire to it or to practice it is available to all of us wherever we are on our right livelihood journeys the second question around visioning visioning so uh, perhaps some of you may have had these experiences of being in an organization or a school or a workplace where you've been invited to vision. And I was recently, I work often as a consultant for organizations, as an alternative economics consultant. And one organization asked me, would you lead us in a visioning retreat? And they were inspired by Ari Weinspeg, who is in uh, the Midwest who is one of the founders of Zingerman's, which is an ecosystem of local and independent stores that are all connected. Zingerman's, really inspiring story and all uh, deeply rooted in place and a very beautiful community building ecosystem of businesses. And uh, Ari Weinsweg and Zingerman's really practices visioning. So they gave me this book to say we would love to do something similar to what Ari leads and in the practice of visioning and perhaps folks here have done similar but just to describe it the the folks the audience are asked to pick a topic that you wish to vision about such as your own life maybe you're a relationship that you're in or perhaps it's your health or your work situation or it could be collectively, such as for your organization or business. And then you pick a time frame as if it's five years in the future or three years in the future or one year in the future. And then you vision as if it is that day in the future. You, put, you plant yourself in, let's say, five years from now, and you describe vividly with detail what your life is like in that topic, that arena of your life on that day. And then the idea is that you work backwards. You create a strategy to get to that state and you create scorecards or ways to measure are you, are you getting there? So I was asked to lead this visioning process and yet something in my Buddhist practice felt incongruent. Something felt quite, kind of in, incongruous or intention. So I wanted to explore this. And I think what it was, and I'm curious if other folks have ideas or thoughts on this, is that when we vision, there is a there is a danger of an attachment to an, an outcome, a very specific outcome, down to the car you're driving and the clothes you're wearing and who's in the room with you. And that that attachment could lead to a narrowing of the future. It excludes Other realms or possibilities that may open that may also be deeply impactful for your own personal development and for our contribution to the world. And so that attachment and fixation, and also potentially once we get there, you know, that whole view of once we get there, is that really what's going to bring us happiness? There's that challenge too. So when I looked at visioning in this way from a Buddhist lens, Visioning and right livelihood, what's the connection? I thought perhaps a more helpful way of doing this to still meet that uh, beautiful invitation for forward thinking and working towards something collectively and getting into alignment and, and setting progress in motion is to go to right intention, is to go to the deeper needs or the deeper intention beneath that vision. So if, if the culture is communicative or that it's very service-oriented or that there's warmth and vitality, then, then focus on that, that that's the deeper intention, not the physical form or the attachment to the physical reality of those goals or outcomes. So I wondered, I'm, I'm still working with this, but would a Buddhist right livelihood approach to visioning be more about the needs that are being met in that vision and the qualities that are there and the deeper intentions. And for me, when I thought about if I were to vision with this in mind, I, I thought of one thing that I've really related to is the Buddhist view of happiness coming from the kingdom of Bhutan. Jing Mei Tin the former prime minister, he says, True abiding happiness cannot exist while others suffer. True abiding happiness cannot exist while others suffer and comes only from serving others, living in harmony with nature and realizing the true and brilliant nature of our own minds. True abiding happiness cannot exist while others suffer and comes only from serving others, living in harmony with nature and realizing the true and brilliant truth of, of our own minds. So I thought when I when I did this visioning and I went deeper and I just that quote resonated so deeply that that's what I wanted to prioritize and and hold that as an aspiration as a north star. And then the the forms, the attachment to the forms, what car I'd be driving, what clothes I'd be wearing, fell away, and I was able to more step into flow, and. Perhaps that's more of a Taoist than Buddhist view, but really just into emergence and into flow. So just some thoughts on visioning and the role of visioning and right livelihood in case that's something that folks have experience with or connection to. And the last, the last piece I wanted to share was related to having a title or having a connection to our title in terms of our right livelihood. And this comes from when I was first thinking about right livelihood, curious about right livelihood in my own path, I was really drawn to the work of Bill Plotkin. Bill Plotkin, Animus Valley Institute, a depth psychologist, a writer. And he talks about something called the mythopoetic identity. He says that we each have a mythopoetic identity. It's kind of our, our calling or our purpose. And it's a title. And he talks about how his, his mythopoetic identity is Cocoon Weaver, Cocoon Weaver. And he says that because what he does is he leads folks on wilderness rites of passage or solo vision quests, and he helps them through transition points in their life to come up with their mythopoetic identities and then emerge transformed. And so he felt that his mythopoetic identity was cocoon weaver. So you can see it's very poetic and soulful and beautiful. And I heard this and I thought, oh, mythopoetic identity, that must, that must be the title of what our right livelihoods are, is our mythopoetic identity, kind of connecting soul and, and Buddhism and right livelihood. And so I would work with myself and, and with clients on what is your mythopoetic identity? What is your calling? What is your, your title? and i thought i found mine renegade economist i heard that from kate rayworth she's a oxford based economist and she was described as a renegade economist and i said oh i love that i want to be a renegade economist and and so i started to say that that's who i was and yet again as i went on as i worked with clients and my own mind and Connecting and identifying as a renegade economist, I started to have again a tension, a tension between Buddhist philosophy, thought, and practice, and this attachment to a title or to having a right livelihood name. And I wondered what that was about. And so again, I'm really curious if folks have thoughts or perspectives on this point. And yeah, perhaps there's folks here who identify as a lawyer or a, you know, eco sattva or a, you know, um, earth warrior, right? Like these are some of the, the frames that I've heard. And so when is that helpful and when is it not to have a, a title, even, even title of mom, you know, mother, which of course, recognizing feminist economics, that parenting and care work is part of our right livelihood journey. So activist, mom, right These are these are identities or titles that we can have on our right livelihood path. So I felt this tension, this difficulty and I've been wondering about this what's the role of roles and right livelihood? And the greatest uh, gift of uh, insight or reflection to this point for me has also come from Ram Das, And I do have to say Ram Dass, deep inspiration, especially from James. (laughs) So I wonder, likely other folks have felt that too. But again, from the Be Here Now podcast, he gives this talk in one of the Dharma talks recorded previously, and I'll post it in the chat in a moment. He gives this talk on what he calls the six planes of consciousness, the six planes of consciousness, six planes of reality, six planes of consciousness. And he offers them as kind of uh, changing the channel. They're all true. They're just different realities that are all happening at the same time. And I just found this really helpful to this question around roles and right livelihood. So he says the first plane of consciousness or of reality is the physical realm. So the realm that we here sitting here are physical beings. We are embodied beings of flesh and bone and we're hot or we're cold and we're clammy or we're dry. We're big and tall and short and wide and and all in between. So it's the physical realm, the physical reality of us being together. That's channel number one or plane number one of consciousness of reality. So true, it's true, it's here. My physical body is real. The second plane of reality of consciousness that he describes, the second channel on the TV station, is that of our identities, so our social identities. So that I identify as a woman, that that means something, that that's real, that meaning, right? That that I identify with she, her pronouns, that I am white, right? These have real meanings, tangible meanings in reality so that we on the screen, where we are, our immigration statuses, our abilities, our identities, so how we identify that those are reals and that's plain or channel number two. Channel number three, channel number three or consciousness or reality number three, that is the realm of the mythopoetic identities. That is the realm of our purposes, of our callings. So that might be renegade economist meets earth activist, meets soul singer, meets lawyer. Like it's like that's our, our callings or our titles of our soul, right? That, that kind of more specific, unique quality that we're aspiring to or calling in our life. So that's that plane. That's that reality. The fourth plane or reality that Ramda speaks about is the plane of meeting being to being that we are beings on this call that we are simply beings beaming in and some of us like i know eve had her 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 furry friend dog being next to her and i have a plant being right here so this is that we're all beings meeting so we drop the identities and the physical reality and the mythopoetic identities and we meet beings to beings here on this call this evening the fifth plane is the plane of oneness, that we are all expressions of universal consciousness, that we are all connected in a web of life, that as I breathe out, a plant breathes in, that we're all connected, that we're, that we're all one, right? So interconnectedness, interbeing, web of life, universal consciousness. And then the last plane that Ram Dass talks about, he says explicitly is for the Buddhists, which I love that he brings that in. And he says, is the plane or the reality of nothingness. And he says that is because even plane number five, the plane of oneness is one is only one because it's looked at from the view of two, but when in oneness, there is nothingness. So nothingness is the final plane. So, or, or plane number six. So, I described this because I found it delightful and and beautiful to hear. And also because it gave me guidance to answer this question, because his thing is not which is true or more true or which one we ought to live through, which channel we ought to tune into all the time, that our lives can ebb and flow between the channels, but to know that they're all true and to not hold tightly to one as if it were the only truth. So this was helpful in knowing that as of now, yes, I identify on plane number three as a renegade economist for whatever that means on this call to to be helpful and whatever it means on my calls tomorrow and the next day to, to change economic systems, to be more equitable and more sustainable. And yet that is not the only bit of who I am. I am also a being. I'm also my social identities. I'm also my physical reality. I'm also oneness I'm also nothingness. So this, this knowing of all of them being true and holding them lighter, that's my experience of holding my mythopoetic identity, my right livelihood title a bit lighter. That's the gift of that insight to me. And I think that's helpful too as we go through times where we may lose our jobs. I mean, especially COVID, how many folks have have lost their employment? You know, COVID has been dubbed a she-session for how many especially women who've dropped out of the labor force, right? So so what does it mean when we lose that, right? And if we hold it lighter, is that helpful for that? But also as things change, my brother's a baseball player. There will be a time when his right arm, he's a pitcher, is no longer able to pitch. If he holds so tightly to pitcher in right livelihood, it'll be devastating. If he holds it a bit lighter, what will that free up? So I, I offer that. I felt, found that helpful for me in answering that question and exploring that theme of our titles, our roles within our Right Livelihood journey. So those are, those are some reflections and thoughts for you just to summarize the invitations. And then I want to open this up to hear thoughts, reflections, questions, and also any answers to this theme of, again, what, what are the questions that you're carrying on your Right Livelihood journey? What are challenging, what's challenging and difficult for you? And also, how are you integrating your spiritual practice, your Thursday night calls with James and Eve? How are you integrating the Dharma into your work life? How are you taking it off the cushion and bringing it into your workspaces? So just thought that that would be a useful thing for us to share. So again, an invitation for all of you to explore this theme of Right Livelihood in today's context, in our culture and time today, I think there's again a richness and an opportunity there to bring it to today's time. And then to explore right livelihood as a path instead of a fixed state, that it can be seen as an aspiration, which makes a little bit more accessible to all. And that wherever you are on your journey, that is your right livelihood as of now. And whatever you're you're doing to turn towards, the alleviating of suffering and the turning towards the flourishing and the thriving of all beings that that is your right livelihood path as you see it and then to see visioning not as a attachment to that visioning outcome but to go deeper to what are the deeper intentions what are the helpful aspirations that you can use that visioning towards or for and then finally to have to have a title if it's playful if it's joyful if it's fun to have a title but to hold it lightly so that we don't bring suffering for us when, as all things change, right? As our, as our lives and our bodies and our abilities do change. So just some invitations for folks. I'd love to open it again, questions, reflections, and any answers to the two questions for you all. The first, how are you integrating your spiritual practice with your work? And what questions or challenges are you facing on your right livelihood journey? So perhaps folks can raise hand, which is if you click on reactions, there's a raise hand function. That'll be helpful for me to call on folks. If that's helpful, just whoever would like to share. Hi, Dory, welcome.
1: Hey, thanks so much for this talk. This was really, uh, really insightful. Um, I wanted to share like two things that really kind of were very helpful for me or things that I really needed to hear. Um, one of them was, um, toward the beginning of the talk, when you mentioned, um, that, you know, right livelihood, uh, this was in relation to right livelihood being a privilege, um, or not. And, you kind of talked about how it's not something that we should view as, you know, an end goal, but really is a process. Um, and I am a recent graduate and kind of looking into entering, like, you know, my career. And it's something that I've been thinking a lot about, just because obviously it's a big step. Um, so figuring out like what I want to do and all of that is is huge. And sometimes it feels like I have to make this ultimate decision um of you know what am I gonna do and how do I choose the right thing and so definitely hearing that like it's a process and kind of that reminder was really really nice to have so thank you for that and then um yeah I was I had something else but now it slipped my mind um but if I think of it I'll let you know
0: (laughs) yeah you can come back but Dory thank you and yeah just to say yeah that that idea of the title too, that can feel like we need to get it right, right? there's that word right again. So yeah, maybe it's not what's the right career for you, but what's the next step? What's, what's the next thing, you know? Yes. And seeing failure, or not failure, but seeing things that don't work out as gifts of insight, right? That's that, so I don't wanna do that. Helpful, helpful knowledge. <laughs>
1: mm, exactly, and that actually reminds me, That's was the other thing that I was gonna say about the title. Um, was that also? I don't have to identify solely with whatever uh, you know, whatever title I give myself or other people give me. That um, that it's there's also more to my being than that. So yeah.
0: wonderful, thank you, Lubko. Would you like to speak?
2: Uh-huh. How are you? Um, so I have a few questions. Um, the first one relates to that metal um, poetic identity you mentioned, and how it kind of ties into visioning your purpose in life and maybe a, a job that you are supposed to do. And um, when I thought about it, maybe you know, let's say that I want to be a dancer and uh, let's say that another person wants to be a poet and uh, all these people kind of follow their own uh, kind of a higher purpose. Who is going to do the dishes? Um, Who is going to take care of uh, sewage? Who is going to do the plumbing? Who is going to be a prison guard? How will that work in practice?
0: Yeah, beautiful question. One one thing that comes to mind, from what I know about universal basic income and studies and theory, is that it would it would lead to a radical change in how work is paid for, where we might actually find that work that is really needed for society, like the janitor of a school, for say, uh, or sanitary. Uh, you know, garbage folks or something like that. That so that's incredibly needed. That those those employments may actually raise rise in status in terms of financial compensation <laughs> because they're so important. And that a universal basic income would make other jobs that are not as necessary uh, really go down or even disappear. So that mm-hmm. that's one way to look at it. I also okay. think that that folks can find right livelihood even in, in work like that. I think there may be folks who bring a deep level of service, uh, especially dishwashing. One of the best jobs that I ever had was uh, spending a summer dishwashing. So I do think that um, right livelihood could mean, uh, you know, joy and intention and service in whatever it is that one is doing. That, that's kind of what I meant by that meeting your right livelihood path wherever you're at.
2: So you mentioned compensation, but is not compensation supposed to be a part of the equation or how you determine your, your right livelihood? Is that supposed to factor into your decision making?
0: Yeah, really another good question. My personal view on this, and feel free if others have thoughts to share on this, is that we do live in economic systems where many of our needs have to be met in financialized ways. Now, there are a few folks who found ways to work trade for their housing needs or garden for their food needs and create a childcare collective for their childcare needs. However, the majority do need to have money in order to survive. And so until we live possibly in that ideal uh, gift economy form Uh, and also you know is money inherently bad great question right it's the exchange or flow of energy right that's one way to view it then perhaps we do need our right livelihood or uh, something else to support us in helping us to survive okay and yet you have a beautiful question which is what is enough right and i think buddhism really gives us some beautiful perspective on sufficiency and enoughness and the middle path, right? Not being an ascetic or or being in, in abundance, right? So being kind of content. And again, gross national happiness in Bhutan, they have the idea that in every area or domain of happiness within Bhutan has a sufficiency level. So they're actually not trying to grow in each level. They say there is a sufficient, there's a level at which you're sufficiently happy in each area of your life. And one of those areas is economic means. So is financial means. So I do think that uh, we do need, most of us need money in order to survive. So if Right Livelihood supports that, and we then it may, that makes sense that right, right Livelihood would support that, that would be the realm of the Eightfold Path that would if
2: that makes sense. <clears throat> okay, there, I have another question about the, uh, you opened kind of your talk with uh, your statement that you are committed to equality and how the inequality is entering the world. Are you, are you talking about inequality of uh, outcome? Like how the, is that, is that what you are talking about?
0: What originally uh, broke my heart was I was working in San Jose, California as a rape crisis counselor, which is uh, at a nonprofit. And I was finding that the work that we were doing wasn't being uh, very well compensated and that we kept having to compete for dwindling sources of funding. So originally it was an inequality about the value of different work. So why is it that a teacher makes X amount and a CEO makes X amount and a rape crisis counselor makes X amount? And I wanted to know oh, how our economy assigns value and, and why it does that so unfairly. So that was one inequality that I was interested in. Since then, I've come to understand that inequality really is a, uh, a root cause of many sources of challenge, both of a uh, division in communities and cultures, in health outcomes, in possibility for dreaming futures, that inequality really affects our, our minds and bodies. And if folks want to know more about this, I really recommend the book The Spirit Level by Kate Pickett and Richard Wilkinson. They're two epidemiologists and they say they show how on all these different health determinants and social determinants and outcomes, that inequality is what causes so many of the the divisions and problems that we see today and they show that a society that is more equal but a high a much lower standard of living the health determines like um, health and obesity and teenage pregnancy and violence and litter that everything is better than a society where it's much higher income but much greater inequality So they're they're really showing that inequality is a root of that. So it's all those levels of inequality that I care about, both the value of different types of work, the value of different people's hour of labor, of different that, um, and inequality societally as a whole.
2: The United States, I think, uh, would kind of rank uh, high on uh, inequality scale, correct, Um, and yet. You know, people are constantly trying to immigrate here to come here uh, from countries that ranked much higher on uh, equality scale. And like, you know, there were there was the whole experiment of communism where, uh, you know, everybody was supposed to be equal in terms of how much they get paid or, uh, you know, uh, where do they live or. Uh, so and and here in the U.S., it's kind of determined by supply and demand, and you kind of alluded to it with the uh, with the universal income when the garbage collectors' uh, uh, salary would go up because there will be less of them. So um, so it seems to me that inequality actually attracts people, kind of. Uh, It's the system that has this inequality built in is actually attracting uh, more people to come here, immigrants, as you can tell.
0: Yeah, I hear you. And I, I wouldn't want to speak for the experience of folks immigrating. I would point to folks who are climate refugees and also coming from places where there's been U.S. influence militarily or economically. I'm thinking about free trade agreements and such and the difficulty that that's had on other countries. But again, I don't wanna speculate as to folks' individual reasons for that. Although I would still say that from my personal experience and research that uh, that the inequality is likely not what's driving folks and actually would be a cause of suffering for folks Whether there are whether we're here in the US or folks coming here, but great questions, excellent exploration. And Zach, I'm wondering, do you have any thoughts on it? I see your hand raised too, or something else.
3: Yeah, uh, you know, you kind of got to my point in your previous what you were saying, but you know, I was just thinking about how, um, you know, a lot of things uh, that are not. You know, like um, jobs that are not sort of highly valued, like flipping burgers or collecting trash or plumber, those are actually things that keep us alive. and um, Even though there's not adequate financial compensation, almost if you took the financial out of the picture, those are so much more important than uh, being a CEO or whatever. Um, and there's so much value to those things. Um, so, I you know I agree with what you were saying about how uh, we live in a society where financial compensation is a necessity, but um, those, I, I think those also are just so sort of value or undervalued uh, things.
0: Yeah, thank you. And I think valuing care work Just really naming that and really valuing that. I think that's one piece. And I'm thinking about, again, folks who are parenting or caretaking. And, you know, often that's seen as if somebody comes out of uh, employment to take care of a child, that's seen as a gap in their resume, right? What if we didn't see that as a gap? What if we saw that as that was their right livelihood during that time? and what skills were developed then and what insights were learned then. That's just one example. But yeah, definitely revaluing and valuing labor for both more equally, but also really valuing the work that is necessary for contributing to thriving and healthy people and planet. Yeah, thank you, Zach.
3: And I think it it gives people the opportunity to see things like, you know, we think of someone flipping burgers as... Uh, you know, a low-wage sort of useless job, but, you know, again, if we look at it as they're actually assisting life of us, um, there's a lot of value there, and there's an opportunity to look at it as, you know, right value path.
0: Absolutely, and so, yeah, I think one thing to highlight here is that there's our individual aspirations on our right livelihood path. And then there's the systemic changes that we could advocate for or create that would create more pathways or easier pathways for right livelihood for greater number of people. Yeah, thank you. Anyone else, any thoughts you wanna add to this conversation? Any questions or things you're carrying on your right livelihood journey or ways that you're integrating your mindfulness or spiritual practice into your work? Is it feeling integrated or separated? Any thoughts on any of that? Louisa, yeah, go ahead. Thank you.
4: Um, thank you so much um, for this talk. It's just really hitting me where I've been living this last year through kind of a tumultuous time in my work life. Um, So many rich examples. So I really appreciate it and questions. Um, And I think a lot about my Buddhist path um, and my right livelihood at work and kind of like you're describing so many levels of existence. I feel like there's so many levels to right livelihood. Um, I really feel like I bring my Buddhist practice to work by like listening and being kind and being um, treating everyone that I work with, hopefully, in, at least I intend to treat everyone I work with, with respect. Um, and I feel like the mission of where I work, it, I feel good about it. It falls into right livelihood. But then there's a whole layer of hierarchy and people I work for who are not very skillful or at least Buddhist speaking. Like, I don't think they're very nice. and <laughs> They're not always kind and don't treat people with respect. So, yeah, so I really struggle. I feel like I, I ponder all this and kind of flip flop around, like, should I be working for? leaders who i just like respect heart and soul or is it enough to be kind and to believe in our mission um so i really you have just given me a lot to think about and um i appreciate also your comments about from ramdas um you know kind of being where you are and working with with what you have and there's always a lot there <laughs> so yeah, thank you so
0: much for sharing your own experience, and I'm sure you're not alone on the call in having that. The some things are working well, and some things are challenging. And yeah, I know that that not everyone it's quite idealistic, and not everyone can just simply change the structure of their workplace. So that not may not be available to you. But just to share it for inspiration, if it's useful, uh, I'm inspired by folks who are moving from businesses to businesses with Uh, either distributed profits right so ESOP is employee stock ownership plans or more like worker cooperatives there's a few places that are transitioning to worker cooperatives that have a more horizontal governance more distributed leadership kind of model and definitely a lower gap between the pay the pay gap and then for, uh, for those who are in nonprofits or more educational or charity organizations, there is the worker self-directed nonprofit, which is the same thing, the move from the flattening of the governance so that there can be more peer and self-accountability and that kind of collective feel um, instead of what you're sharing about where there's the lack of transparency and the hierarchy and, and perhaps lack of accountability. So yeah, I just want to share those examples, but I know they're not accessible for all. I <laughs> of inspiration. Thank you again. Yeah, we have time for one last person. Anyone else want to share a closing reflection or thought before we close with dedication of merit? No? All right. Well, then I will hand over to you, Eve. Thank you so much, everyone, for being with me this evening and for the questions and the thinking and the thought. And yeah, really a joy to to think and talk about this topic. So thank you for the opportunity. Eve, over to you. Yes. Thank you so much, Della. That was so wonderful. Thank you so much for being here and bringing your experience and your heart and your wisdom to to us. It was just really a gift. Thank you so much. And
2: um, folks, reminder, uh, Della's PayPal info is in the chat. And um, just offering Donna as gratitude
0: and uh, just as a generosity practice of our own um, sustains the Dharma and, and having people like Della come to us. So thank you for that. Um, all right. Sometimes I sing the dedication and merit, but I'm actually... I don't have my guitar with me right now. So Della, would you like to lead a dedication of merit? Of course. Yes. All right. So we'll we'll just end with a dedication of merit. I invite you again to close your eyes if that feels comfortable for you. And reconnect with your sense of being breathed here on this call. May our presence and our reflections and our intentions this evening be of service to life on earth. May they serve us in our right livelihood journeys, in our work as part of our spiritual path, in our aspirations for integrating our mindfulness and our heartfulness practices off the cushion in our daily lives. And many benefits from this evening, and our thinking, and practice, and thoughts on this subject ripple out into the web of life, benefiting the happiness and well-being of all beings.